anyone listening, I would say that don't let the news get you down. In any recession, I think there is incredible opportunity to kind of reinvent yourself. You're either your core business or go after other opportunities. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to the story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huberman. Hi, I'm Eric Huberman, and you're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Brandon Webb. How are you? I'm good. Nice. Hello from Puerto Rico. Yeah, no, good place to be right now. <laughs> How is it down there? Oh, it's great. Good weather's great. You know, barring the odd hurricane every every now and then, it's just pretty nice. So before we dive into everything, like what took you down there originally? Like how long have you been going down to Puerto Rico? would love to know more about that. Yeah, so it was a tax-driven move for me. You know, a lot of people don't realize Puerto Rico is a part of the U.S. It's a little bit of a strange connection. It's U.S. banking, but their legal systems based off the Spanish system. So there's a little bit of complexity. But I, I had moved from you know, sunny California to the East Coast. And it also kind of filled that gap for me with California because I, I like the ocean. I, I like to dive and surf. And Puerto Rico has all that. And I've gotten to really fall in love with the island. The, the island should be a global tourist destination with what it has to offer with the rainforest, the diving, the fishing, this world-class Hawaiian level surfing. It's just an amazing place. People are friendly. You know, it has its challenges like everything else. And on top of all that, if you're running an online or, or a business that you can run remote as a founder CEO, you get this 4% flat tax on the corporation. And if you reside here, you can take money out tax-free in the form of a dividend. And that's just like the tip of the iceberg. There are plenty more benefits. But if people are interested, they just can Google Act 20 and Act 22. One is for business, one is for, for residents. Yeah, I mean, it, it's tempting at a time like now where, frankly, almost every business is having to be remote. I've been thinking about right. it. I don't think I'm going to be able to pull it off, but I totally respect and I'm a little jealous of people that have figured out how to make that work because, you you know, yeah. the taxes alone could probably, if you have a decent sized business, the taxes could buy you a mansion in Puerto Rico with the savings. Yeah, and you can get an oceanfront house like on the beach yep. for under a million dollars. Yep. Exactly. I don't know too many places you can do that and still be in the U.S. banking system. And if you're living, even if you're just paying federal tax at what, 24% right now, you know, so, okay, if your company makes $4 million a year, one year of being in Puerto Rico, you just bought that house. And then every other yeah. year, you're just saving that money. It's crazy. Yeah. So, yeah, really interesting, compelling thing. So speaking of the beaches and everything, we'd love to start with like the beginning. You're obviously at this point, you've been a Navy SEAL, you're a New York Times bestseller, you've run a successful media business and built a successful e-commerce business. But where did it all start? Where are you from? What got you into this? Yeah. So, you know, my parents were hippies. My dad moved right. from and Canada. Parents usually leads you to become a Navy SEAL. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> my mom is still trying to figure out what happened. Um, <laughs> My dad came from Toronto, Canada, moved to Malibu during the 60s, you know, burning draft cards with all his buddies, had a landscaping business and, you know, up in Malibu, I think Decker Canyon is where he lived. And then he picked my mom and her girlfriend up hitchhiking in his truck and, you know, asked for my mom's number and they fell in love. And my dad was like, oh, let's move to Canada with me, move to British Columbia. And my mom was like, yeah. And my grandmother was like, absolutely not. Like, you, you're, 
you're not, unless you marry my daughter. And my grandmother's amazing entrepreneur. Like she lost her husband tragically. He had a minor surgery and a blood transfusion and got HIV and bad blood essentially and died in his thirties. It was kind of tragic, but my grandmother went on, took over his business and grew a, a bunch of collection agencies in LA. So, you know, tough women. She's like, not a chance you're moving to Canada. But my dad married my mom and they moved to British Columbia, um, just east of Vancouver. Yep. Had me and my sister. My dad had built from scratch a construction business. And, and then the Canada had a financial crisis in the late 70s. And my dad had built a big project and had a construction loan on the project. And long story short, you know, the financial markets collapsed, the bank wanted the loan, they wouldn't give my dad a mortgage on the property because he could have rented it out, but he went bankrupt. It was really devastated him for a long, many years. He, you know, just couldn't get over it. And eventually he started a construction company and, and then became a developer later on. But I think it also caused him and my mother to, to think about, you know, their bucket list. They had bought a sailboat. We lost it in the bankruptcy, 60 foot Sparksman Stevens. They had always wanted to cruise around the world with, when the kids were young. And at this time, I think I was eight or nine. So they, we bought a sailboat in Vancouver. We sailed to Ventura, California. I lived on a sailboat five years in Ventura Harbor and my dad was working, saving money. And we took a trip to Mexico for almost a year and I was homeschooled. Amazing time. I was, you know, Cabo. Yeah. I know you've been there. I remember in Cabo San Lucas when the marina was one dock and yeah. like horses roaming around and then there was two bars only. It was the giggling marlin and and then the, the one that the van halen guy owns squid row yeah and that was it but amazing you know time for me running around barefoot in mexico yep. i come back from that trip and my mom said hey there's a scuba diving boat and this is kind of how i got introduced to the navy seals yep. she said there's a scuba diving boat that needs a young deckhand just to work for tips and you just help and how old are you at that point i was 12 and she said, I think the owner will certify you. The captain or, or owner will teach you how to dive. And I was like, hell yeah. So I was sweeping floors in a chandlery for, you know, six bucks an hour, miserable. And I'm like, man, this sounds like a cool job. So yeah. I took the job, amazing experience, learned how to dive, worked that boat throughout school. My dad announced to the family when I was about to turn 16, he said, hey, we applied to immigrate to Australia. They've accepted us. We're, we're going to sail there and see what happens. Well, we save the money, we're going to go. And, and at the time, you know, three years working on the boat, I had all my own dive gear. I, I was a full-fledged deckhand making, you know, probably close to $100 a day plus tips and, you know, was standing watch in the middle of the night when we drove the passengers out to the islands. It was like really just an amazing experience. Thousands of dives, including like, you know, getting woke up at 2 a.m. to get the anchor unstuck. Um, you know, <laughs> so confronting, confronting a lot of fears of the dark and sharks. I uh, got over that pretty quick. Yeah. First time I got the 2 a.m. You know, tug on the shoulder. But that what really got me in as a competent waterman, because I also surfed as a kid and, and I got, you know, was scuba diving, surfing the Channel Island, mm -hmm. dealing with passengers. And anytime anyone that's dealt with like some type of public service knows it builds a lot of character. <laughs> 
<laughs> you have to put up with a lot of shit. But anyway, my dad announced we were going to go on this trip and it was the last thing I wanted to do. I was like, I want to get a driver's license. I want to hang out with my friends. I'm turning 16. I have all this autonomy and money and freedom. But it was like, okay, I'm, I got to go. You know, it's my family. And I do remember this. My dad said, I don't want to be the guy at the harbor always talking about taking the dream trip. He's like, I don't want that. And that kind of stuck with me. Mm -hmm. as a life lesson and I have a lot of respect for my dad for just you know taking a family and, and doing what we did in Mexico and later the South Pacific because this was before GPS you know we had Loran C which worked in the U.S. mainland you know there were fixed base stations on land and you can get a fix but there was no GPS so it was like you had we had charts yeah. we had a sextant to take you know sun sites we ended up going down to Acapulco and over to the Marquesas Islands I, I turned 16 in the Acapulco Yacht Club Nice. Um, which, which is a funny story. I'll tell you privately <laughs> another time. Hear that. <laughs> <laughs> but we went, I lost my virginity. Uh, we, there you go. We, uh, yeah. That's actually, I mean, that should be the title of your book, How I Lost My Virginity in the, in the next book, in the Acapulco. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 30 days at sea to get from Acapulco to Kivaoa and the Marquesas Islands. And my dad and I started butting heads immediately. I think it was me having a chip on my shoulder as a coming of age kid. You were a sailor at that point, so I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> no, very. I was professional. And no, my I know. Mom's, my mom said it was like having two captains on the boat. Yeah. So yeah, we arrived in Tahiti. My dad and I had this big argument, and it got physical, and we decided. To diffuse the situation, I would leave home. So I, I left home in Tahiti. I found a, a catamaran that was needing crew to sail to Hilo, Hawaii, and you know met the couple that needed help. Really standing watch. When you're sailing these long trips, you yep. generally want somebody. And I know you're an experienced boater, but you know when you're going for multiple days, you want somebody at the wheel or the helm watch all the time, especially at night because you you just don't know what's out there, whether it's a shipping channel or just weird stuff that you see in the middle of the ocean. Yeah. But I crewed on that boat from Tahiti to Hilo, then flew back commercially to LA. I got, my friends picked me up and I, the owner let me work on the boat and finish my senior year of high school. Nice. And yeah, he wanted me to be a captain. I had taken all my hundred ton masters. Mm -hmm. I had my letters and everything to take the test when I was 18. But I, something happened where I had my friends outside of, off of the dive boat and they were getting into hardcore drugs. And I saw one night, you know, one of my close friends, Joe, who's now homeless, literally my mom saw him in the Whole Foods parking lot in Ventura. She's like, how does this guy know my name? <laughs> but anyway, I saw the grips of addiction, right? And I said, God, I got to get myself out of this environment. I mean, I, I made good decisions, but I knew enough then that I need to get out of mm -hmm. this environment. So, you know, I had okay grades and I had a weird academic record. I, I really would, would have loved to went to the Naval Academy, but I, I just didn't have the academics. So I enlisted, I read a book about the SEALs, I learned about the SEAL teams. I had no idea up until I was a, a junior in high school. And I thought, okay, here's a chance for me to get college paid for, really challenge myself and kind of be something that not too many people can do. So that, that was the motivation. I joined. You enlisted with the immediate intent of becoming a SEAL, not we'll figure it out once I enlist. Yeah, well, well the problem is today you can get a contract and go right to SEAL training. Back when I signed up, you had to take a job 
and then you had to apply in boot camp. Yeah. There were only a few jobs and they were very, very poor, like crappy jobs, uh, for lack of a better term, that you could go direct. You could go to boot camp, you go to your crappy job school, and then you go to SEAL training. Got it. I, I was like, as an insurance, I took a cool job because I, I scored enough high enough on the entrance exam. So I was eligible for air crewman search and rescue swimmer, which means I would be a helicopter search and rescue swimmer. Yep. which is what I did for three and a half years, applied for SEAL training. First time they turned me down because they were, the job I was in was undermanned. They didn't want to let me go. Yep. Second time, I'm like, hey guys, I'm not going to stay in the Navy unless you give me a shot at this. So I got orders and went to class 215, graduated 1998, 220 started and about 23, I think, originals finished Wow, out of that batch. So talk about like, why did you see that some 90% of your class dropped out throughout the class after going through all that to even get into the class? Yeah. What pushed that? Why would that happen? I think a lot of people show up and they have this fantasy about being a SEAL. And then the instructors joke about it. They're like, everybody wants to be a SEAL or, or a SEAL student on a Friday afternoon because you get the weekends off to recover. Yeah. But no one wants to be one Monday morning at, at 4.30, you know, getting dressed, knowing you're going to get your ass kicked first thing in the morning. <laughs> of course. How long do you go through your training? The selection is about seven months, just under seven months, wow. just the kind of the selection process where they just kind of get, it's divided into three phases. First phase is conditioning phase. So that's the phase where they kind of, they do break you down and build you back up physically and mentally. Then there's dive phase. And then there's the land warfare kind of tactic phase. And, and the third phase, the end of first phase is hell week where they keep you up for five and a half days, no sleep. Yep. You know that you get a lot of people, a lot of people dropping out, you know, up to that last part of hell week. The statistics, I think you're out of like 70% graduation rate after hell week, but okay. they, we lose a lot of people up to that part. And so I'm, I don't know how much you can share, but I'm curious, like what were some of the hardest parts of that training? I mean, SEAL training is obviously just notorious in a lot of ways. What is it about that lack of sleep? Is it them waking you up? Is it the cold water? What was it that was so difficult or so hard? Is it the exertion? I know it's all of it, but what were parts that you felt like you might not get through? Honestly, the cold water yeah. was a big Nobody likes to be cold, especially, you know, in the middle of the night or, or first thing in the morning. You know, I know this now, having been an instructor later in my career, they have a body mass index chart and they take the temperature of the Pacific Ocean. And as you know, even in the summer, it's pretty chilly. Yep. And they know exactly how long they can keep you in there right up to the point of hyperthermia. And that's what they do. And, and if you're one of the, the unlucky skinny ones with no body fat, your chances are your treat is you're going to get, you know, the flashlight in the eyes. They're going to see that you have hyperthermia. They're going to pull you out, put you in the hot tub, put a thermometer up your butt and then back to the cold water again. So it's like miserable experience. The cold, just the day in, day out grind. I mean, one day would be in first phase, you know, you're up at 4.30, you're four or 5 a.m. PT on, on the beach, which is stands for physical training. You got to make your room because you got an inspection that day. So your, your floor, everything has to be spotless. Your uniform has to be ready to go. You know, you're on the grinder at 5 a.m. and just getting crushed by these guys that are in incredible shape, you know, thousands of push-ups, thousands of sit-ups, among other exercises. And then if you screw up, you got to run and hit the beach and 
get wet and sandy. So now you're chafing and you're doing all this in full fatigues and boots. Then you'll run, you know, three miles to eat breakfast. You'll run three miles back. Then you'll do an obstacle course for time. Then you'll maybe do a classroom. You'll run three miles to lunch, three miles back. Then you do like a two mile timed ocean swim. Then you come back from that, maybe another class, run to dinner, run back. You'll do some like hydrographic charting classes at night. You'll finish about 7, 8 p.m. with a little homework, get to bed by 10, and then you just like do it all over again and, and with different stuff in there. But just, I think where guys get wrapped up in the head and they're just like, how can I do this for seven months? Like, how can I possibly get through this? And, and it really challenges your ability to deal with adversity day in and day out. And I think that the recipe where I see guys succeed is they're coming to training. They have the tools to deal with adversity because they've already dealt with it early on in life. I had, I remember, you know, collegiate level swimmers, full scholarship, you know, very gifted athletically, but had kind of an easy life. You know, mom and dad were wealthy. They were gifted athletically and they'd never been challenged. And it doesn't matter how good you are, you're, you're going to get it in one fashion or another. Yeah. And these guys just weren't equipped to deal with it. They're like, this is, this sucks. And I'm, I, I don't want to do this. So, you know, and then I finished in 98, went to SEAL Team 3, went to Afghanistan right after 9-11, came back, got involved as instructing as a sniper. Then I kind of, I got recruited to go down to the basic sniper program. I was teaching advanced helicopter tactics and urban sniper. Then I got recruited. Uh, we were overhauling our sniper program, which is three months long. And it was an okay course, but we turned it into one of the best courses in the world with positive psychology, mental management program. We, we borrowed from the top, you know, U.S. Olympic team gold medalists and their coaches implement a lot of that stuff. And I ended up getting promoted to take over that course as course manager. And I got promoted early. You were running basic sniper training for the SEALs? Yeah, I was a sniper course manager. So I was in charge of all the instructors, the students, the curriculum, everything, the budget. I reported to a master chief and a division officer. And yeah, it was an extremely rewarding part of my career. But I, I had been in the Navy over 10 years at this point and just kind of hit burnout. And, and to be honest, I'm proud of what I did in Afghanistan, but I saw this kind of drifting foreign policy and never-ending wars, right? And look, you know, today we're still in Afghanistan. Yeah. I, I hit burnout and I was like, you know what? I had a great run. I'm going to leave now because I, I don't see an end to this deployment schedule. And I saw guys really getting burned out. They were sacrificing families and everything. And I said, you know, I don't have anything more to prove to myself. I, I've served my country honorably. Time to move on. So I, I left in 2006. And real quick, I want to get into that, but before we do, yeah. and you mentioned positive reinforcement, but what is like, is that the biggest leadership lesson you learned being in the SEALs and really managing and helping train SEALs is positive reinforcement going further than negative? You're leading people that are going into the like biggest, the most stressful situations ever, literally, that yeah. you can possibly imagine. It's literally known as the epitome of a stressful situation is being in war, in combat. So, you know, sort of leading in that and training for that. Yeah, I would say that the biggest takeaway that really made an impact on me as a leader, even to this day, was my experience working with a guy named Lanny Basham, who was one of the pioneers of mental management and an Olympic gold medalist and a you know coach of many gold medalists. And when I saw us implement positive psychology in the curriculum into a very stressful environment, which the SEAL sniper program is, guys are stressed out every day. 
because they have to perform at such a high level. I saw that we just became better teachers, better coaches, and, and the failure rate went from 20% to, to next to zero. And I'm like, this stuff works, right? Like if anything, we raised the bar and we were graduating everybody, we made it harder but we were just becoming much better coaches yeah. and giving them the, the tools to succeed and block out negative thought, whether it's self-talk or ex external forces. So that was a really great experience for me. But I left in 2006. I was, you know, I, my marriage was struggling. I had a young family. You know, it's stressful. You know, you have, I had my first son when I was in Afghanistan, running around in the north, northern part of Afghanistan. When I came home, he was four and a half months old. It was, it was kind of wow. surreal. But I, I left in 06. I got right into entrepreneurship. You know, I had a startup with this crazy idea. I was going to build a racetrack in Southern California. <laughs> That's awesome. I knew nothing about development. Um, um, real quick, in terms of leaving, what were the emotions around that? Like, it sounds like you jumped right into something because I know a lot of people when they leave the military, there's this like empty kind of feeling a lot of the times, especially when you spent 10 years in it. Yeah, for sure. It's a shock to the system. You're used to getting a paycheck every two weeks. Yeah. You have, you know, there's that safety net. And, and then there's this community. And, and the one thing that, you know, I'll be honest with your audience, that leaving the SEAL community in particular, we don't have a very good alumni association outside of the community. Once you're gone, you're kind of like out on your own and it's dog eat dog, man. Like I've had some of the worst interactions post-military with former SEAL teammates huh. that not necessarily like great at what they do in the military. But to be honest, some of these guys would probably be in Hell's Angels biker gang or behind bars if they didn't find the SEALs as, a, as an outlet. <laughs> so yeah. but the trend that you left or is it just there isn't? Yeah, it, I got a lot of like, wow, you just got promoted to chief petty officer. You wasted that promotion because there aren't many billets. And I'm my thing was like, look, man, I earned that promotion yeah. and I'm going to take it with me. But a lot of it was basically like all of a sudden me versus them. And it was very weird situation to find myself in. And, and I was like, wow, there's no community outside of the community. And so um, it was a little bit strange. I think what helped is I had a really good friend of mine, Glenn, who was, he left before I did. And, and so I had kind of that, you know, buddy to kind of lean on and, and ask questions, help me navigate the VA and what my benefits were. But it was strange. And I think also, throwing myself right into something. I think what many people do, they, I had a plan when I got out. A lot of guys, men and women, they don't have a solid plan. Maybe it's like, oh, I'm going to go to school, yeah. but they, they kind of drift and, and that's not a good thing. So a lot of people struggle with transition. And I wrote an article the other day for my media site about purposeless wars. And, and I really think when I deployed to combat, there was a lot of purpose behind it. It was on the heels of 9-11, I felt like we were doing really good work, meaningful work, but I don't think anybody can claim that after 2003 in Afghanistan or Iraq. Well, what the hell is it for, right? So when you're put into these traumatic combat situations over and over again, and you come back and you're reflecting on it, and your guys are, men and women are going, what the hell was I doing there? Like, why did my friends die? Why did I get injured? What for? And if there's no good answer, I mean... If anyone hasn't read Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, an incredible book about, you know, the Holocaust survivor who was a psychologist, and what he found was people were depressed, they lacked purpose, right? And so I feel like comparing World War II, which was very easy to kind of go justify 
mm-hmm. what the atrocities of war and come back. The World War II veterans were amazing, like titans of industry. They kind of put that bad stuff behind them. And I think they were able to let it go because it was a very purposeful Crazy. war. Yeah, yeah, Hitler was a bad guy. Yep. And so I think that's why we have a lot of veteran suicide. We have a lot of transition issues. It's because mm-hmm. of lack of purpose. And, and, it, and it's a damn shame. You know, and and it's through, you know, a Republican and Democrat administration, Bush and Obama. So it's not tied to any one party. We all kind of have some ownership in it. A whole nother discussion, but, you know, emulating Israel, everybody has to serve two or four years so that everybody has personally invested in the wars we get into is an interesting argument I've been hearing a lot more of recently. Not sure. Yeah, I mean, anybody that's really served in combat is probably that I've seen that transition successfully is probably the least likely to, you know, engage in violent activity. They just know that it's, it's a terrible thing. And, and so anyway, I left. So then and, you just started to build a racetrack. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> oh, I'm going to build this $100 million racetrack. I raised $4 million. We bought a thousand acres, nice. three and a half year entitlement process. We got yep. the permits. Wow. And this was in 2008. And then everything went to hell. Right. Yeah. Like where was the racetrack? Where in something It was in about eighty minutes east of San Diego on the I eight when the eight drops down into Imperial Valley, right there. Got it. In Ocotillo. Great project. Would have done a lot of things differently, but you know, we basically the, the economy wiped us out. We needed another capital call and a lot of our investors got wiped out. I mean, we're dealing with just, you know, issues that we're probably gonna, you know, we're dealing with now to some some effect in this recession. Yep. But basically lost everything, lost the land, lost all of our money. I had my life savings tied up and everything. At the time, my wife and I were in counseling. We agreed to separate on very good terms, thankfully. But I was literally lost the business, life savings, and wife divorced me and was like, Hey, I'm moving. I gotta the kids are gonna start school soon. I'm I'm moving north of Santa Barbara to my family's ranch. And so now it's like I'm alone in a house. It was like rock bottom. Around 2007, I started writing for magazines, just submitting. I started submitting articles, fictional events based on kind of what was happening with world, writing for Maxim, FHM. And then I started blogging and I found this outlet and I was like, um, I like this. And I, and I was pretty good at it. A friend, Marcus Sattrell, who wrote Lone Survivor, which became a movie, suggested I write a book. He's like, wow, you got a really interesting story. You should write a book. Uh, he had, you know, had his book out. And so I, I ended up after, you know, three agents turning me down. I got a good agent. We got turned down by m- many publishers, you know, probably 10. And then one editor at St. Martin's Press took a bet on me. And, you know, the book ended up doing really well. So I, I had this kind of side thing going on with my writing. And what was the first um, book called? Called The Red Circle. And it's kind of everything we've talked about with a little more detail really, you know, my childhood and getting into SEAL teams and and kind of leaving. So here I am, I lost everything. I'm like, what the hell do I do with myself? I ended up having to put myself out there and for a job. I'm like, well, I gotta, I gotta make money. I have family support. I headhunter got me hired with L3 communications. So I I got trained as a business development executive and I had got my degree in in night school on the Navy at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical. I, I was a pilot. I was maybe think about being a professional pilot until I decided that I wanted to pursue business. So I got this job. It was amazing. I got trained up to run a business unit. It was classified contract. I had a, I had a security clearance and was really responsible for about a $40 million 
communications contract and making sure that the engineers were meeting the end users requirements and that these guys just weren't making stuff that they thought was cool that the the end users were, were going to use the as paperweights for it. <laughs> yeah but great experience i had a, a really good woman boss tough as nails i mean to become a president of a division l3 as a as a woman in the defense industry is is pretty tough um, she was it was a great great experience but i you know i didn't i i knew i was like i want to leave the military and i was still going to military bases still dealing with it you know dealing with the politics of the defense company that hired me because i was a spec ops guy and, and i kept a really tight beard and had to wear a suit and tie but they were like you know, I get the whispers around the water cooler, like, hey, you know, when are you going to shave like the rest of us? <laughs> it's like, shit. Uh, I was just over it. So I, I ended up leaving right as my first book came out. I was moonlighting as a blogger on the side. And I said, yeah, I got to start a website. So I started softrep.com as a kind of like, you know, interviews and stories and videos about guys who served in the, in the special ops world. And that website took off. And I, I left L3, I think in 2012, I did a little bit of consulting because I got them into the predator program at General Atomic. And that's a lesson. Like I always try and leave on good terms, whether it was the dive boat or L3. And I want to leave them in better shape than when I showed up. Mm -hmm. I even talked to my son about it the other day. I borrowed a friend's truck and I was like, look, we're going to walk. He's like, why are you washing the truck? And I'm like, look, I, as a rule, I think it's better to return something in better condition than when you borrowed it, right? So I gassed it up and washed it. He's like, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> so I left on good terms. I started the business. Within 10 months, we had almost a million dollars in advertising sales, mostly from USAA, which mm -hmm. is a federal credit union. Uh, they, were, they were just impressed, not with our traffic, but our engagement. You know, like you guys got, you know, organic traffic engagements off the hook. So I'm grateful to USAA for taking a bet on us. And then over the years, grew that into subscription-based kind of news and entertainment, like military streaming network. We had built the Crate Club business on the back of that audience, uh, which was an e-commerce subscription box for guys. I sold yeah, what, that, as you know, this year. Yeah. And what brought that up? Like, how did you decide, like, we got to launch e-commerce. You've been a writer, then it starts to take off. You find some advertising, they're like, that's it. We're merchandising this now too. Well, I had, you know, in the beginning, we made a lot of money, really good margin from advertising. And you know, advertising on digital started taking off, but a lot of disruption happening, you know, agencies, you know, trying to figure out digital and they're like, they want to make their jobs easier. Right. So they want, it's, they're not coming to me with 2 million unique visitors to offload, you know, impressions. They're like, they want a site with 50 million visitors. And a lot of those companies were buying traffic, as you know, like there's a lot of shady stuff going with China and Russia yep. with these server farms. And, and then Facebook and Google really started getting good. And then, you know, rightfully so companies were like, wow, I can really measure my ad spend much more. And so I just saw a lot of like fluctuation. Our, our CPMs were taking a nosedive and I was like, wow, we have this great audience. What can we monetize them ourselves? And so that's when we started having this conversation around e-commerce. And we had one of, we had a blog around doing gear reviews and it was expert military police outdoorsmen doing really hardcore product reviews on survival and outdoor equipment. So we knew that the audience was already asking us what to buy and trusted what we wrote about and, and reviewed. And so that's what, it wasn't my idea. We had one of my advisory board members, Will said, who is an agency guy, um, awesome guy. And he said, 
you guys should do one of these subscription boxes. And it was early on, right? So we, we launched the Crate Club. It took off like crazy, like 200% growth, but it was a very different business as you and I have talked about, you know, running an asset light business and all of a sudden you're managing supply chain, forecasting, allocating capital to buy product. And it just got out of control. And, you know, I, I think I've shared this with you before, but sure, certainly my YPO forum knows about it. <laughs> I had this soft spot in my heart and I, I didn't, you know, I, I was hiring these a couple of these veterans that I shouldn't have hired, you know, at all. And one of the guys who was our product procurement guy ended up the major drug problem. Really, I, my personal opinion is the VA contributed to it because they just throw opiates at these guys. Yep. This was a guy that was making six figures for me, was an incredible guy and just went off the deep end. And by the time I caught it, because one of my executives who was so a 20 year sober guy was hiding him. He was on the program, right? Kind of like trying to hide this guy and, and fix him. Yep. And when I found out about it, I was like, I said, this has to stop. Like, there's no, we're not running a rehab clinic. I let him go. I gave him 60 days severance. I called his wife and said, look, we have to get him into a program. And unfortunately he died, I think almost a year later from an overdose. And, you know, the tragic as that was, he almost put us out of business because he ordered $2 million of product that we didn't need. And yep. so I had to go like deal with that in 2019. So, you know, victim of my own success with the Crate Club, you know, coming off of 2019, rebuilding the business, going to the Harvard OPM program, which you're in, I'm really kind of investing in my business education and realizing, okay, got to get better at hiring, got to really, you know, get better at building culture. And then I realized I have a problem here and I need to fix this. And then going into the pandemic, when as soon as that pandemic hit, I just finished my second time at Harvard Business School, Unit 2, and I was in Europe. And I'm like, okay, I need to exit this business. What are my options here? I don't have the capital resources to do what I'm going to need to do. Because I, I knew that vendors were going to go out of business. Yep. The net 60 was over. They're going to want down payment terms. Yep. And as I was having this conversation with my health, my, our third-party logistic warehouse calls me and says, oh, net 30 is now net 15. Uh, a week later, it was, no, hey, sorry, not net 15, cash on delivery. And I'm like, you can't manage your cash conversions. At least I couldn't manage the cash conversion cycle like that. It put too much stress on our cash flow. So I ended up selling the business to our competitor who, who I was in talks with and and usually the top kind of two, three, you know, competitors know each other and, and respect each other. You know, they don't have to get along, but you know who, we, who each other is. And so I think, I think that's a super important note. I think in any industry, most people respect their biggest competitors. It's all the yeah. little people that are, it's the bad actors they don't. But if you've built a big business, yeah. you're usually not a bad actor. And yeah. Usually. And so I think, yeah, there's a lot of mutual respect with your main competitors. Yeah. And I think that helped me have a very candid conversation because, you know, you still, you want to go into any negotiation, you know, mapping out, you know, all the different parties and, you know, seeing where, where people's incentives lie. But I was able to have a candid conversation with these guys and say, look, we can do this, but we're going to, it's going to be really rough on us. And so, you know, I was able to exit that and it was, it was a huge weight, weight off my shoulders. Even my guys in my forum were like, man, that's the first time I've seen you like really look relaxed in a year. I was like, 
Thanks. But, you know, now I, you know, I made the decision to kind of shore up the media business and really have a, an e-commerce component, but just work on the dropship model and really focus on content. Cause that's something that I've always, me and my team, we've always over-delivered on content. We have a, a strong subscriber base, all organic. I mean, they, you know, they pay five to 10 bucks a month to, to subscribe to our content. And we, you know, most of that has been built. Our subscriber base is built organically. We're just now starting to get some paid acquisition in the mix because the rates are so low right now. It's a good time. Yeah. And then the last thing I would add, I, you know, I saw the pandemic as a huge opportunity and because I had sold the Cray Club, which is the bulk of my revenue, I went to my marketing team and I said, guys, what's the opportunity here? Like, where can we play? And we had done some stuff in nutraceuticals before in the supplement space. And so we ended up co-founding uh, Tiger Gummies, which is kids vitamins with my head of marketing, Alda. And that launches this September, the product ships in September. So anyone listening, I would say that don't let the news get you down. In any recession, I think there is incredible opportunity to kind of reinvent yourself. You're either your core business or or go after other opportunities. In Harvard, I would credit with giving me, opening up my mind to going, I don't have to be the CEO of this. I've got a very, like an incredible marketer, Alda, uh, who can build a team and lead it. And I can just be the co-owner and an advisor. So it helps you think about things differently. No, that's, yeah, you've told me how valuable that education is. I'm signed up, but I haven't started yet, but I'm excited for it. And so what do you think's next for you? You know, you've gotten here, you've done a lot. Like, what do you think's coming down the pike other than launching a vitamin company? I honestly think I would like to sell the media business. It's to the point now where it's hands off and growing and it would kind of bolt on to any kind of media company that is serving a mostly male demographic. Like we have a very similar demographic to like UFC like the MMA crowd there. It's yeah. fascinating with military content, the interviews, you know, anytime Joe Rogan interviews a Navy SEAL, like those are the kind of guys that we have in, in our fan base, in our world. So, you know, the business is, is good. I've had it eight years. It's a, or I keep it and, and put somebody, maybe I promote a CEO, but I, I, I want to make a change. I think at a point where I love kind of building things, I'm in, investing in self-storage properties now. Mm -hmm. just at a point in my life where I want to take a little bit of a break, I think. And I've always had a pretty damn good work-life balance. I, I don't just say that personally. My, my YPO form <laughs> tells me like out of anyone here, like Brandon's always traveling or flying his plane. That's um, going to be my next thing I want to get into is the flying. Which, yeah. You know, we, yeah. On that note, that it makes a lot of sense. You're a pretty incredible pilot. I say from firsthand experience, because the one and only time I've been up in your plane and I ended up upside down a few times, <laughs> did a nice barrel roll, just passing the Freedom Tower and yeah. a nice loop over Westchester. You told me some quick anecdotes, but I never really dove in. How did you become a pilot and how did you learn to the trick pilot side of it? I became a pilot when I was 29, about to turn 30. It was my gift to myself. I'd always been fascinated with flying things. I always wanted to fly. In fact, you know, I, I think I was influenced by movies like Buck Rogers, who was a pilot. You know, he was, it was an old series, right? I'm aging myself, but this guy got frozen in time, thought out, and he's like, you know, hundreds of years in the future. And 
He was a NASA astronaut that froze and now he's like a pilot in the future. You know, watching cartoons like Robotech, like I'm a huge Robotech fan. And so I feel like those are my childhood influences. And so I just was like, I got to fly. And so I learned how to fly when I was 30. I got my instrument rating right after. I flew for a couple of years and then ended up meeting a guy named D. Conger, who was an ex-Air Force fighter pilot who became like an incredibly successful biotech entrepreneur, mostly to fuel his aviation habit, according to him. He now owns Circle Air in Gillespie Field and pretty much owns half of the airport, has a squadron of jets, including F-5, which will go supersonic. He has a couple F-5s. Incredible guy. And he throws this flying event once a year. It's invite only. And I, I had coffee with him one morning at the coffee cup in La Jolla Village. And he's like, you know what? Why don't you stop flying those bug smashers and buy a yak? In fact, I know a guy right now, he has one for sale up in the Bay Area. You should probably call him and, and then we'll just train you up and you can fly with our private group. And I'm like, few times in your life when you get that kind of invitation. And I, I knew D and his background. He's incredibly one of the smartest guys I know. And I'm like, you mean like I get to fly with, you know, the guy at Condor, who was the original 13 Top Gun instructor, like the founding instructor of Top Gun, Bill, who has 400 hours flying the space shuttle. Like those are the kind of guys that he hangs out with. I was like, fuck yeah. So I, I literally, the next week I flew up Southwest I looked at the plane. I bought it. I had this guy, Paco, who's now my partner in my Yak 50, check me out. He gave me this like fire hose checkout. He's like, all right, you're in the pattern. You know, he taught me how to do like a whole military break pattern. And I was like, man, I don't know what the hell is going on here. I'm just following orders. And I flew that plane and got a hangar in San Diego and started flying with these guys. And for five years, I learned how to fix planes. I learned how to, you know, D, you know, had me in the hangar. And he's like, hey, you want to learn about landing gear tear the landing gear off that yak over there and so i'm like i don't know what the hell i'm doing he's like here's the manual <laughs> and so i just started taking stuff apart and it gave me a lot of confidence to know kind of the mechanical end of the plane as well and these guys trained me up from scratch they put me in a military curriculum with some of the best pilots in the world and who are my friends now and and trained me in a very safe environment and built my confidence up and now you know, I'm a pretty capable aerobatic pilot and safe. You know, I, I don't take unneeded risk. Yeah, I got to say, I've told the story quite a few times because it is the first and only time that I've done that so far. And flying with you and you're going inverted and everything, it felt like I was listening to a commercial airline pilot walking me through the final approach where it's like, all right, and we're just going to roll right <laughs> over. And it was just like, there was no like adrenaline rush. It was just calm and kind of, it was, and I'm a guy that likes safety, but also likes experiences. And I think yeah. the main point here, when you get an invitation like that from the guy like that, you take it. You figure out yeah. how to make it work. I don't know what yeah. your finances were like to even afford the plane, but you, you figure it out because yeah. what that opens up is just, it's what life's about. So last question, then I'll let you go. For everyone else kind of pursue their dreams or trying to figure out what they're going to do with their life, you've you know had a lot of cool different careers and different paths. What's one piece of advice of like how to figure out what your next step is or what to look for to pursue that? I was having this conversation with my friend who's down, one of my SEAL classmates, Eric, and he's down in Puerto Rico with me. And and I, we were having this talk the other night over a glass of really good wine. And I said, you know, I've always, I think when I had that really crappy job mopping floors of the boat store in Ventura Harbor and then getting this amazing job on a dive boat, which, which was so fun. I was like, I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this. I remember early on 
when I was 16, 17 going, you know what, I'm always going to have a job like this where I, you know, and people say this in many different formats, right? Like when you do what makes you happy or what you love and, and you're passionate about it, it really doesn't feel like work. Yep. And I've always let that kind of guide me and, and it guided me into the SEAL teams. I had an amazing career, but then it got to the point where I'm like, I'm not having fun anymore. So it's time to, to kind of reinvent myself. I think especially with the the rapid pace of technology, just the environment we live in in the business world is, is so prone to disruption. You have to stay on the leading edge all the time and, and join the groups like Young Presidents Organization and, yep. and Harvard Business School. But I think if you're under 40, you're going to have at least one or two times where you're going to reinvent yourself and your career. And, you know, I wouldn't chase the money. I would chase what really genuinely makes you happy. And, and, and I would also be serious about it because a lot of people I hear a lot of younger people, oh, I want to be rich, but they don't know what rich means. They don't know that rich in today's dollars is about $10 million in the bank, which lets you kind of, you know, live about $400,000 a year in passive income. Yep. And so, you know, be serious about and realistic about it, life and money and career. But I think, you know, letting your happiness dictate you know, what you do in life. I think you and I both know and have met people that have lots of money and are the most miserable people on the planet because they just, you know, pursued that and sacrificed many times their health. They sacrifice experiences and now they're old and they don't have the health and they can't do the, the fun, cool things that they want to do when they were younger. Yep. And so that, that would be my advice. Yeah, I agree. It's it's a combination of you can't take it with you. So going for just money doesn't mean anything and enjoy it along the way. I think that's where your YPO is giving you shit for traveling. It's like, that's how it should be. You shouldn't be waiting yeah. for retirement to enjoy your life. That's the yeah. one you can be able to enjoy it the least. Like do it when your body's nimble and you can actually take the full advantage of the experiences. Like that balance, yeah. and that harmony of work is super important. Well, Brandon, thank you so much for coming on Hawk Talk. Really appreciate your time. Yeah. An awesome conversation, man. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Hawk Media is your outsourced CMO and marketing team. We'll dive into your business for free, identify opportunities in your marketing strategy, then get you teamed up with individual experts, all month to month and a la carte. Whether you're looking for a Facebook advertiser, a web designer, or a fractional CMO, we can help you drive growth for your business. We've successfully grown over 2,500 brands, and we're here to help you too. No matter your goal, we've got you covered. To learn more, visit hawkmedia.com. That's hawk with an E, media.com. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.